uh, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Gospel of Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you're here this morning and you need a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will get a Bible to you. Feel free to pull out your phone as well uh, and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. All right. Can you believe that uh, school is starting back just uh, this Wednesday? So county schools go back to school this Wednesday, which is insane because I feel like when I was in school, we went back way later in August than they do now. But they start this this Wednesday and then UGA in a couple weeks. And so with the start of a new semester, we're going to start a new series. I wish we had a little bit more time in the prophet Micah, but um, guess what? I went too slow. And so that's why we kind of pushed forward into that last passage of Micah chapter 7 this past week. But we're going to have to move forward, move on with the new semester. And so where are we going to be this semester? We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. It is 16 chapters. I can't guarantee how long we'll be there. Just plan all the way till Easter, just to be safe, okay? Uh, But there's so much in the Gospel of Mark. There's so much of... um, meeting Jesus again and encountering Jesus again in the kingdom of God in the scriptures as a community. So I'm really excited to see what God's going to do this semester. Let's go ahead. Let's read through the opening passage together. I want to read through it all the way. But today what we're really going to do is we're going to focus in and meditate and pull out all the implications of that first verse. Let's read through the whole thing. It's eight verses picking up in verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there. Before we get into this, again, I want to focus mainly on verse 1. I want to give some quick historical context, all right? The writer is Mark, also known as John Mark, and he was the companion of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. They did a lot of ministry together, the writer of this gospel. And then he also was good friends with the Apostle Peter. So he's kind of in. He's got some good friends there. And the way that John Mark wrote this gospel is is twofold. You'll see it on the screen. The first way he wrote this, and this would have been around uh, mid mid 50, uh, let's see, scholars debate this. Let's say it's in the 50s in the first century, somewhere in there, okay? But he wrote this uh, twofold. Number one, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's number one. Jesus said this would happen. He prepared his apostles to write the New Testament, the charter of this new covenant community. You see this in John chapter 14, where Jesus says to them before his death and resurrection, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So he's preparing them. He's saying, we're going to write epistles and uh, gospels. Jesus knew all this. And so he's saying, the Holy Spirit's going to visit you and bring to mind, inspire you to write these things accurately that I have said and done. The second way John Mark wrote this gospel is Peter retelling to Mark all that happened to Jesus. So his, his, his source here is Peter himself. And they collaborated on this writing project, Mark and Peter, and they wrote this together by the inspiration of God's Spirit. So just imagine that. You have, I mean, how fun is John Mark's job? He's sitting there with the apostle Peter, closest to Jesus, and he's just taking him through what happened, taking him through the story. And John Mark is writing these things down for us and for the church. And so that's, that's how it was written. And what I would say is you really can't get two better sources on the historical and real Jesus than God's spirit and then on Jesus's closest eyewitness disciple, Peter himself, which means this. We're in good hands when we read this gospel. We're in really good hands to know who the real Jesus is. There's so many versions of Jesus today, right? From all kinds of different sources. But how, how more accurate can you get than going back in time to Peter himself, the one who was there? And so we're in good hands this semester as we read this. Let's focus in on the first verse. Let's read it again together. Mark opens with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Mark is doing here from the opening is he's signaling to his readers, to us, what all, all these 16 chapters are going to be about. It's right there in the verse. It's going to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his main subject in this work, the gospel. I want to pause here and I want to ask you a question. When I say that word gospel, what comes to mind? Think what comes to mind when I say gospel? What's the first thing you think and the first thing you feel when you hear that word, the gospel? Maybe it's Jesus. It's not a bad place to start. Maybe it's things like being saved. Maybe it's your childhood preacher's voice that you grew up with. Maybe it's the megaphone preacher on the street. Maybe when you hear gospel, you think of heaven or hell. Or you think and maybe feel guilt for not sharing the gospel more with others. That could be one. Or maybe you feel terror about trying to share the gospel with others. But what comes to mind when you hear that word gospel? Because that's one of the first things... Mark writes about here. The verse says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which tells us two things right there in verse 1. The first is this. It's on the screen. Number one, who the gospel is about. It's about Jesus. And then even more importantly, it tells us, number two, who determines the message of the gospel, which is Jesus. Let me throw something out, out at you here, and I, I want to see if you agree my belief that the gospel message has been hijacked. 
has been hijacked. That there's all kinds of other messages that have co-opted the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know what I'm talking about? Could be instead of the gospel about Jesus, it's, it's political messages, right? Like, become a Republican like Jesus. If you're not that, then you're not really a Christian. Could be one. Or not just political messages, but Facebook messages. Like, if you don't agree with us on this particular social issue, then you're not a real Christian. Canceled. Right? And what we've done is we've taken the center of the gospel that it says right here in Scripture is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we move that to the margins and we put in other things like political gospels or social media gospels. Could be prosperity messages like believe in Jesus and he'll give you everything you want. Health and wealth. I call this the genie in a bottle gospel. That Jesus is just there as this genie in a bottle. You make wishes and he's just there to bless your life. Maybe it's condemning messages like you're going to hell since you don't have the same theological views as we do. There's all kinds of different messages that have co-opted the real message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we have to ask. Is this really our ancient message to the world? All these other gospels? And of course not. But, and you know this just as well as I do, so much of what our culture sadly thinks of when they hear the word gospel is all those other messages, right? When you think of your coworkers and acquaintances, what message comes to mind when they hear the word gospel? I would venture to say that the reason we can be timid to talk about the gospel with those friends is because of all of these bad messages they've already heard. That not only do we get a fresh start with someone to discuss who really was Jesus and what was he really about, we have to climb and get over all the clutter of all the other messages that they've heard. And that's a huge mountain to climb. It's a real problem. And so what I want to ask today as we focus in on this verse is this question. It should be on the screen. What is the real gospel of Jesus according to Jesus and the scriptures? What's the real gospel of Jesus according to him, not you and I, and to the scriptures? That's where we're going to get our real answer. And so look back at verse 1. That word, the beginning of the gospel, that's the Greek word. New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word is euangelion. It's a fun word to say. Euangelion. That's what gospel means in the biblical language. And what euangelion or gospel meant back in the time of Jesus, when, when, when they heard, when they read this, right? Because the gospel marked around the 50, 50s of the first century, when they read that word gospel, euangelion, it had a certain meaning, and it's not what you would expect. Gospel in the time of Jesus and Paul and the early church was primarily a military term. A military term, not even a spiritual term. It was news 
or an announcement of military victory. Okay, so the most literal translation would be good news of victory from the battlefield. Good news. We've won the war. Good news. We won the battle of Gettysburg. That's gospel. That's euangelion. You're announcing military victory. Modern day example of gospel is when all the American newspapers had the same headline in 1945. The war is over. Victory. V-Day. Right? In Jesus' time, gospel, primarily military, but it also could be used to announce good news concerning the king. And the king back then was Caesar. The Roman Empire was ruling most of the Western world. And so it also was good news about Caesar. For example, in 9 BC, the birthday of Caesar Augustus was announced around the empire as euangelion or gospel. Good news. The king's birthday is today. So you got to get that historical part. That's what they heard when they heard euangelion. But what does the second half of the verse say right there in verse one? It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. Do you know who else was called the Son of God in Jesus' day? Caesar. Caesar was also called, his title was Son of God, which is interesting. And so when Mark starts his gospel with Jesus being named the Son of God, he is saying emphatically and dangerously that Caesar is not the Son of God. He's saying Jesus is. Dangerous move. Subversive move. Do you know who else was called Lord back then? Not just Son of God, but Lord. Caesar. So when Paul goes around the Roman Empire saying things like Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, not just Caesar in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar. Paul is proclaiming a dangerous gospel, a dangerous message. The gospel in the very beginning of Christianity was not a message about all these other things we've made it about today. But rather it was the subversive message that Christ is king. Not politics or social media. Or you and me, not Caesar or Trump or Biden, Bezos or Putin. And the victory of Christ was not won by blood bullets and bombs, but rather by the self-sacrificing love on the cross. You have to get this. God doesn't kill his enemies. Rather, God forgives and dies for his enemies. What does Jesus say at the cross? Luke 23 says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
You have two radically different lords and sons of God in the time of this gospel. You have two radically different kingdoms, a Roman Empire and the kingdom of Christ. Caesar's victories were for him, his pride and wealth. Christ's victory at the cross was for you, your salvation and life. The contrast back then in first century readers and church could be any more different. And so not only does our culture have a cluttered view of what the gospel really is, I believe inside the walls of the church, we have a cluttered view of what the gospel really is. And we've got to get back in the time of Jesus, in the text, and see what it's really all about. Caesar's empire was about the spread of his power. Christ's kingdom is about the spread of his grace. Two totally different things. Grace. We'll focus in on that beautiful New Testament reality, grace. Because I think therein lies a major misconception about the gospel in the walls of the church. And I certainly know in the walls of my own mind and heart. Why? We can't handle grace. We get a little uneasy with grace. You know, everyone's different personality. You get a little uneasy around other certain kinds of personalities. Maybe for you, it's really talkative people. Maybe for you, it's very shy people. You get a little uneasier. If religion and politics comes up at Thanksgiving, you get a little uneasy, right? I believe we get a little uneasy with grace. You see, here's the reality. We often make the gospel about what I can do for God when the gospel is all about what God has already done for you. It's the announcement of news. It's already happened. Victory has already been won on the cross. Euangelion, God has done it. But we Christians often think we have to win our own spiritual battles. We Christians often think we have to go win the world to Christ as if we could. Does anyone, I mean, anyone know what I'm talking about? And see, we often pick up empire-like tactics of conquest and colonization to try and force the world to be Christian. What's so different about the Christian religion, what the New Testament is emphatic about, is you have to believe on your own personal conversion. It's not because your family had this religion. It's not because the emperor has this religion. The New Testament was, the Christian faith was so radical in that time period. It was, you have to believe. It's your faith. It's your decision. It's your choice. You can't force the world. Be Christian. I see it in all kinds of ways. We're going to get our people in office, right? We're going to market better than anyone else. We're going to raise more money. We're going to build bigger buildings. We're going to yell at people on social media. We're going to publish more books. None of those things are bad in the right context, but too often we treat it like an empire that we want to take over the world for Jesus, which is so different than how Jesus operated. To my knowledge, Jesus never ran for office, never marketed himself, 
never raised a bunch of money, certainly never beat down people with his speech, and never published a book. Jesus simply loved and discipled a small group of men and women and taught them what God was really like. And the main way he taught them was not by his speech, but by his cross. Imagine the crucified Jesus on that day. It was springtime. It was during Passover. And the Son of God, God in human flesh, as a person, is hanging, crucified on a tree. And the New Testament says this. That's what God is like. There, the hanging God, the crucified God, the God who sacrifices himself for you. That's what God is really like. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There he is, the God hanging from the tree, arms spread out in unconditional love and grace for the world. I like to call him the God of shocking grace. The Roman and Greek, Greek gods were not like this God. Nothing like this God that we see in Jesus on the tree. The Roman and Greek gods, they had the people serve them. They never stooped down to serve the people. And yet with the God of Jesus, we have the one who says in Mark later, he says, he says, I've not come to be served, but to serve. I'm not like the Greek and Roman gods. I'm the true one God of heaven, ruler of heaven and earth. And I'm the God who's come to serve and to die like that and give my life as a ransom for the entire world. Shocking grace. You think it's hard for us to hear this message now and really be able to handle that kind of loving God. It was even harder for them back then. The world back then was not ready for this kind of God. They weren't ready for this much grace. They weren't ready for Jesus. And so right here in the passage, God has a messenger go ahead of Jesus and all of this shocking grace to prepare the way. Remember what we read right there. The prophet Isaiah, 750 years before this happened, Prophesies what's going to take place through John the Baptist in verse 4. It reads this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. What about you? What about myself? Are you ready for this kind of God? The God on the cross. What about you? The grace is hard for me. I've been thinking about it all week. Grace is very hard for me. I don't know if it's how I was raised. I don't know if it's the American way and culture that we get discipled by. But I feel like I have to earn things spiritually. Like really earn that my, my effort, my self-will exclusively. That I have to be the one behind my growth. It's me. Now I would tell you, well, of course it's the grace of God. 
You know, I don't, I don't have to have a Christian answer. But I think deep down, truthfully, if you think of like a circle, and red is, is grace colored in, right? And blue is my effort, and there is some level of effort in the Christian life. If I'm honest, I think it's so much blue. My effort. Thank God's grace. That I have to cover my own sins, that I have to prove to God that I'm faithful to Him. That's not how it works according to Scripture or the Gospel. God's grace is behind my and yours, all of our good works. You find this in 2 Corinthians 9. Take a look at it. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, that you, that you having always having all sufficiency in all things, may have abundance for every good work. Look at the first line. All grace abound toward you. And you see, where do you see abounding again? Abundance for every good work. Who's the source? That word, grace. It doesn't say to make all of John abound toward himself. It says grace. God's grace, the scriptures tell me, is behind my weakness. And there's plenty. 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, John. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know this, but I'm going to tell you again, because we say we believe these things, but too often our hearts take a little more time to catch up to our head. God's grace is behind your salvation. Ephesians 2, hear the good news of Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. I love the black and white language. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Grace, grace, grace. Or another way to say it. God, God, God. He's all over it. Think of grace and salvation this way. You've heard me use this example. Christmas morning, you're a little kid. Go back in time. Your mom has worked hard to give you a grace, a gift. She brings it over, right? And all you have to do is put your hands out and receive it. And the gift is yours. This analogy is a gift of salvation. Not letting grace in is this. Well, well, hold on, Mom. I need to go do some things. I need to go do some good works. I need to go clean the kitchen or, 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 or wash the car or whatever. I can't receive this gift. And your mother looks back and says, no, it's yours. It's a gift. It's grace. This is how the gospel works. The gospel is God's victory of grace toward the whole world in Christ. And this is what we're going to learn together. And we're going to encounter in the pages of this gospel this semester. 16 chapters of grace. And they're going to work on you and me. They're going to challenge us. They're going to stretch us. And they're going to make us whole. I want to end with the words from a Christian leader in the 16th century. His name is Ignatius of Loyola. And he used to teach his community about our relationship with God and our relationship with grace. And it's very helpful. It's something you can take home with you today. 
It's three stages that we must all go through when it comes to God and his grace. It's on the screen. It's hyper complicated. Take a look. Look how complicated that is. Three stages that every Christian has to go through with their relationship to God's grace. The first one starts with me. It's all me. This is before you come to know and follow Jesus. Everything is about me. I am God and I am the center of the universe and you will all serve me, which I'm still getting over as a Christian, by the way. It's called pride. Okay? But the first stage every human being goes through is me. This is from Ignatius Loyola. The second one, you come to faith and it's me and God. There's still a lot of me in there, but there's God and I'm learning to let God in and let his grace in and change and transform my life and to give him genuine praise and credit. But it's, it's me and God. But Ignatius says there's a third stage in the Christian life that takes many decades to move into it. The first one is me, the second is me and God, and the third is just God. Where I have let God in and his grace so much that he has transformed my life, my will, my ideas, my emotions. He's covered my sins, he's healed my wounds. He, he's transformed my grief. And the more and more as I get older, into my 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, Lord willing, 80s and so on, I look back on my life and most of what I see is just God. Just grace. God is good. God is faithful. God changed me. God held my kids together when they were teenagers. God held my marriage together. God grew me out of that pride and more into humility. I and mean, it wasn't me, as Paul says, it's, it's, it's God's grace. It's just more and more you look back and you're in that third stage and you see God and grace everywhere. This is the Christian's journey. And here's what I want to tell you. You cannot do it on your own. It takes a community together over decades, over different sermon series, over different semesters to together learn how to let in the grace of God into this community's life so that we might know him and make his gospel of grace known. Amen? Amen. Gospel Mark, get ready. It's going to be fun. Much here for us.